Look at this city. Look at the picture of this beautiful, amazing place. This is Jerusalem. This is the city of David. It is the city of Yahweh God. This is the city to which Jesus Christ will return after the seven years of the tribulation. He will ascend. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. He will go down that mount. He will go up over the cleansed landscape through the east gate, and he will take his place as Lord God of the earth in the newly rebuilt temple. That's the Dome of the Rock, that big golden thing right there. That is the center of worship for Islam. Right there in all of Jerusalem, that's the holy place. They say that's where Muhammad went up into the clouds. You see, everybody fights over Jerusalem. Why? It's one little city in one tiny country in the whole wide world. Why is it so important? Why does Jerusalem matter? Because this is the home of the Messiah. This is where history will find its culmination. So to do that, I want to talk about this. We've been going through the bylaws. We've been going through all these things. And what is that? I want to call it the journey home. The journey home. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is about the journey of the people of Israel going home finally to the beautiful city of Jerusalem. And I'm going to put these in parts. We're going to go looking at these in parts, parts of a journey. You all know how a journey begins. A journey begins with the burden. The burden of wanting to go somewhere. Maybe your family is sick in the Philippines. Uh, my dad, maybe 10 times a year, would drive from our home in Michigan down to Kentucky. That's a 10-hour drive. 10-hour drive, like 10 times a year, just to see my grandmother and my grandfather. And he would do that because he had a burden in his heart to take care of his parents, take care of my grandparents. This burden here is the same burden we felt that you felt before you ever called me. Before you ever called me to be the pastor, you had a burden to change the direction of GGCF. You did that by you created a constitution. You created a set of bylaws. Now you are voting on those bylaws that says it doesn't matter who we were. It doesn't matter where we started. This is where we're going to go and this is who we're going to be as a people. You are making that decision. And we're going to see this whole journey lived out in the book of Nehemiah. Okay, let's begin. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is where we start. Before you take this journey, when you feel that burden from God, you have to take an inventory. Take an inventory of your life, of where you are and where you stand. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> the words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah, during the month of Shelev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. May God bless us to understand this incredible epic story. Let's take a look at it. Quick history lesson. You all know that the people of Israel were disrespectful to God. God sent them to, into exile under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and it was prophesied that they would be gone for 70 years. They would be in exile for 70 years. You know what happened in the 70th year of their exile? King Nebuchadnezzar's successor, 
had been very disrespectful to God, very disrespectful to the people, so God decided 70 years are up, it's time to bring them home. A man named Cyrus, who was a Persian, attacked and took over Babylon in 538. In 538, he was met by a crotchety old man named Daniel. Daniel was still alive when Cyrus walked into Babylon. Now, you know, Babylon had huge walls. They could ride four chariots right across all the way down the wall and back. That's a huge, thick wall. How did Cyrus break into the fortress of Babylon? He walked. You know how he walked? All of Babylon was fed by rivers. So what did he do? He dammed up the rivers. And the water stopped flowing. And here's the amazing thing. There are all these gates that swing out over the rivers. And on the bottom, there are these little tiny gates that come out, and they lock the bottom gates so that even the water can't go in. Guess what happened? They were getting drunk, getting stupid. This is all recorded in the book, by the way. They were getting drunk, getting stupid. They left open the little gates at the bottom. So you know what happened? They dammed up the river, and the army of this man walked in. Cyrus walked his army into Babylon without a struggle. And he took over that kingdom, and it fell, just as the word of God said that it would fall. So in 538, he got this crotchety old man named Daniel. And Daniel said, by the way, King Cyrus, God has a word for you. He gave him Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 1, which says Cyrus, this was 150 years before Cyrus came on the scene. 150 years before this man took control of the army, it says Cyrus is my appointed he actually used the word anointed like you use for a Messiah. He is my appointed messenger, and he will do, he will succeed and subdue the earth. God said who would liberate the people of Israel. Now here's the problem. In 538, because of the message from God, Cyrus decreed that the people of Israel could go home. So a man named Zerubbabel took the first wave of people back home. They went home because of the message that Daniel had delivered because of God's decree. Now it says the temple was rebuilt and dedicated in 516. So worship began again in Jerusalem. But it wasn't all back yet. Ezra, the prophet Ezra, the priest, he led the next wave of return in 458. This is a history lesson because I love history. You need to understand, this didn't just happen in one day. So in 538, boom, the first wave of Jews go home. Eighty years later, the second wave goes home. Then, in the 20th year of the king who was named Artaxerxes Langemanus. You know who Artaxerxes was? How many of you guys saw the 300? King Xerxes attacked the Greeks, kicked the stuffing out of him. Okay, that was his daddy. By the way, who was Xerxes married to? Married to a Jewish girl named Esther. Ever heard of her? Xerxes that creamed the Greeks was the husband of Esther. Interesting, isn't it, how it all comes together. Here's his son, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes follows up, and in 445, he is reigning. And that's what it says right here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, during the month of Shelev, in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes Langemanus, He's in the fortress city of Susa. This is the Winter Palace, beautiful place on a citadel. Hanani, one of the brothers of Nehemiah, goes to Jerusalem and says everything is torn up. Look how he describes it. 
The remnant in the province who survived the exile, these are the first two waves that went back. Remember the first one went back, 80 years later the second wave. Here we are about 10 years later. They are in great trouble. This means that they are afflicted. It doesn't mean they have financial trouble, it means somebody is beating up on them. To be afflicted means to be attacked and to be beaten. Some of you are sitting here today and you feel afflicted. You feel picked on. You feel persecuted. You feel like the whole world has turned against you. That's how these Jews felt. They had gone back to Jerusalem, to God's city. The temple was rebuilt. But you know what? They were still being picked on. They were still being persecuted. Not only that, it says they were in great disgrace. Okay, that word is simple. They were being rebuked. They were being shamed by somebody. Why were they being shamed? Because someone didn't like the Jews being back in Jerusalem. Why does the entire Arab world want to destroy Israel? It's a little tiny place in the middle of nowhere. It has no oil. It has nothing except for a lot of nuclear weapons. Israel is nothing to worry about. Why does the whole world pick on Israel? Because in Israel is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, and that is where the Messiah will come and reign over the entire earth. And you know what? The Arabs know it, and the Russians know it, and the Chinese know it, and everybody is scared of what's going to happen when that Messiah comes back. That's why they fight over this city. Now notice what it says. The walls have been broken down, and its gates have been burned. Many people look at this and they go, okay, well, when it was attacked originally, you know, of course they broke down the walls and they tore down the gates. No. People have been back in Jerusalem now for nearly 100 years. But something's happened. It says that they are being afflicted, they are being rebuked, and now somebody has breached the walls again. They believe, many scholars believe, this is a brand new thing. Something new is happening. A new attack. Here's what I'll tell you, church. If you're going to make the journey from where you are to where God is, to where God is doing something, you can bet that you're going to be attacked. We are saying on Tuesday night at prayer meeting, our church is under attack. Our marriages are under attack, our families, our children are under attack. Even our own sense of self-esteem, our sense of who God is, where God is going, is under attack. And that is because we have enemies, because we stand for Jesus Christ. We don't stand for the general religion of the world. So of course we have enemies, and of course we will suffer persecution. Now here's the thing, the wall was broken down, that's bad. But notice this, its gates have been burned down. The gates were the most important part of the city. The gates are what allow things to go in and people to come out. Let me ask you, in your life, how are your gates? How are the gates of your mind today? Do you know what I mean? How many of you guys play basketball? Okay, nobody plays basketball. That's what I thought. Okay, you always keep a guy by the net. Why? Because if the other team's coming down and they're going to put a ball in your net, what is his job? Protect the net. Don't let the ball go in. Get your big hand up there and bat the ball away. In your mind, you have a gate. And the gate is your eyes. The gate is your ears. What do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you allow to penetrate from the outside world into your mind and from there into your heart? Think about this. Ladies, I am telling you, you have the hardest trouble guarding your gates. You know why? Because every woman's magazine I have ever read in 18 years of marriage, I have read a lot of women's magazines. Believe it or not, you know, 
Here's the thing. Every page of every magazine tells you what? Your clothes are out of style. Your shoes are old. Your earrings aren't big enough. You don't have enough gold. You don't have enough bracelets. You don't have the most modern things. You don't have the most up-to-date handbag or whatever else. The whole world of women's fashion conspires to penetrate the gates of your eyes and your ears and make you think you're not good enough. The, your eyes tell you, hey, I don't look the same way I did today as I did when I was 17 or 18. So what does the world tell you? You have to diet, you need to exercise, you need to wear your Spanx, you need to do all these things. Hey, you think I don't know? Come on. I'm a smart man. Now, of course, my wife being incredible doesn't need them, but there you go. Earning points, right? Yeah, here we go. The world wants to get past the gates of your eyes and ears and tell you the lies that will make you feel weaker and broken down. That's what happened in Jerusalem. For a hundred years, people were there, and they had rebuilt the temple. They were worshiping God, and now all the enemies of Israel had broken the walls, and they had burned the gates so that they could not bar it, and they could not keep out the enemies. Some of y'all have been watching... Um, TV soap operas so long, you've been reading Harlequin romance novels so long, you've been watching those Tagalog uh, soap operas for so long, your gates are burned down and you don't even know what truth is anymore. Guys, you ain't off the hook. You just as bad. You tell me, I go to your house and you go, oh, my wife was watching that soap opera. Sure she was. Yeah, like you weren't there watching it too. Come on. I know a guy at my last church, he was a Vietnam War veteran. He started watching General Hospital in Vietnam in 1965. He's still watching it today. Sometimes it gets past the gates and you are hooked, you are addicted. Before we can make this journey, before we can go forward, we have to look. Our church is in great trouble. We are under attack by the devil. Our marriages, our children, our ministries are under attack. And sometimes we are being shamed because, oh, you haven't grown this much, or you don't have this, and you don't have that. We have everything we need to worship God, amen? That's the point. Here's the thing. We need to realize our gates are under attack. So whatever comes in the door of the church, whatever comes in through our eyes or our ears, we need to evaluate it based upon the word of God. A lot of uh, preaching that you see on TV. I was watching a couple of preachers this morning. I was watching Charles Stanley. Now, Charles Stanley, I like, I like him. I watch him. But you know what? I don't believe everything Charles Stanley tells me until I read it in the Bible. There are other preachers, I know they're lying. You know how I know they're lying? Because they're breathing. And I just know that because I've never heard a truthful word come out of their face. So here's the thing. You cannot believe anything you hear until you check it against the word of God. That's how you rebuild the gates and protect yourself. If you just open yourself up to everything, every person, every TV show, your gates are burned down and the enemy is flooding your mind and your heart with lies. Keep looking at this. So you take an inventory first. Now, Nehemiah is not a prophet. He is not a priest. He is a government official. We're going to see that in just a minute. But he finds out that they're in terrible trouble. Now look at the next one. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 7. After you take an inventory of your life and your situation, of your church situation, you need to come clean. You need to be honest with God. Every, every one of these uh, self-help books that I've read, every one of these Dr. Phil shows I see or Oprah, whoever else, yeah, I like, I like to watch people that don't know what they're talking about. 
because they really explain their ignorance. Here's the thing. They're all right at this point. If you're going to get help, you need to come clean. You need to be honest with your situation. Look what it says starting in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Guys, real men weep over the state of the church and their families and their children. If you do not weep over the state of the church and your families and your children, you're not a real man. I'll just say that honestly. And it, our hearts have to be with God's people and our families. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying. Now, fasting and praying for a Jew, Jews love to eat. You need to know this. If you've ever been to a Jewish home, they love to eat. When they fast and pray, it is serious. It's because something is seriously wrong. Something is very, very wrong. He fasted and prayed before the, before the God of heaven. And I said, Yahweh, here he calls on the covenant name of God. We covered this two weeks ago on Tuesday night. Yahweh is the name that God has given to his people whereby we call on him. It's a covenant name. It's a promise name. I told y'all, if I'm in a grocery store somewhere and I hear a little girl say, Daddy, I look. You know why? That's my covenant name. My covenant name is Daddy. And I'm going to look every time I hear that, even though I know my daughter's voice has changed and she is now as tall as my wife. I still respond to my name. That's my name. It says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open. We're saying this. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Just like you said earlier, we have to pray for our people. We have to pray for our pastors. We pray for our country. I even pray for the president. I know some of you pray against him. I pray for the man. He needs to do a good job. You know why? As he prospers, so prospers the nation. Amen? The word of God says, pray for those in authority over you that it may go well with you. And that's the truth. He says, let your eyes be open. Here's the best part. I confessed the sins we have committed against you. You know what's great? I can confess everybody else's sin. Lord, I confess that brother so-and-so is a jerk. And sister so-and-so is a gossip. And Lord, I admit that brother so-and-so has a bad attitude. And sister so-and-so, well, she's just so lazy, she can't even pick up her own feet. I can confess everybody else's sins. But here's the thing. Nehemiah did not confess, confess everybody else's sins. He said, these are the sins that we have committed against you. I love this. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and the ordinances you gave to your servant, Moses. This is so important. When you are coming clean, you need to come clean, not just of your sin, but the sin of your family, the sin of your church the sin of your city, and the sin of your nation. We have to be honest. Because only when we come clean, only when we get all that stuff out of there, can God replace it with a knowledge of himself. Everything we try to hide, every sin we try to hide. You ever try and hide a sin from your wife, gentlemen? And they look at you, and they give you the stare. Because they already know what you did. You know how they know what you did? Because somebody else's wife already called them and told them what you did. It's because your friends are blabbermouths and they talk to their wives, then their wives call your wife and you're dead. Wife already knows. Is that right, baby? Got the eyes on you. There you go. 
<laughs> Keeping a sin bottled up inside you does a couple things. One, it shuts off your relationship from the person you've sinned against. And two, it begins to burn down the gates of your own heart. When you're trying to hide those secrets, when you won't admit them, it's like having cancer. It festers and it grows and it boils up inside you. And a lie that is kept inside spreads. Spreads outside the place where you sinned to all parts of your life. The people of Israel had sinned greatly. When the first wave of refugees returned under Zerubbabel, what the king said was this, any Jew who wants to go home, go home with my blessing and we will send money with you. Most Jews didn't go home. You know why? Good jobs, nice houses, awesome chariots with 20-inch rims. They had all of the luxuries of life, everything that could be provided by living in a big city, with wealth and power and good food and friends and social standing. They had all that. Why would you leave that to go back to a busted up, broke down hovel in the middle of the desert that's had coyotes living in it for 80 years? You know why you go back there? Because that's where God is. That's the city where God said his name. That's where the temple was supposed to be. Most Jews would not go back because they had it too good. They had it too easy. Why don't people serve God? It costs too much to serve God. It takes too much time to serve God. It takes too much of an effort. Oh, you know, Lord, I know that you went to the cross and you endured suffering and agony and death and you let yourself lay for three days dead, but, but Lord, I don't want to give up my bowling night. I don't want to give up my card night. Lord, if I have to go to church every Sunday, that's just going to mess up my football schedule and I already bought my season pass. Lord, if I have to go to Bible study, somebody might ask me to read the Bible, then I have to admit that I never read the Bible. Then I'll find out I'm not saved. See how it goes? We get comfortable playing the game. Here's the problem. While they were in captivity, while they were in Babylon, they adapted to the ways of the Babylonians. It's interesting. In this passage, 4 to 7, twice, it mentions the phrase, the God of heaven. That's not a Hebrew phrase for God. That's a Persian phrase for the false gods of their fathers. The Israelites had been so long in the captivity of these people, they had begun to adapt and adopt the ways and the language of their other people's worship. That's the danger. It even crept in right here into Nehemiah's prayer. Now, God knew what he was talking about. It didn't matter. But it showed that the religious system of Persia and Babylon had crept into the way the Jews were thinking and talking. Let me ask you, how clean is your worship? How much of what you know about the Bible is what you know because you've read the Bible, and how much is what you know because you saw it in the Ten Commandments? I was picking on the Ten Commandments Friday night in Bible study. Do you know there's a lot of errors in the Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston, you know? Charlton Heston is Moses, and Yule Brenner is Pharaoh. Do you know there are a lot of mistakes in that? There's a lot of non-biblical things in that movie. No one knows because we look at the movie and it's very interesting. It's easier to watch the movie than read the book. Yet we look at the movie, we say, oh, this is where God did this and, and, and Moses did that. No, it's not. That's not in the Bible. But we have that error in our thinking because from our culture, remember Holy Week in the Philippines? What movie do you see a hundred times on TV? Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments. My wife to this day will not watch the Ten Commandments. You know why? She got burned out during Holy Week in the Philippines. 
It's just on too many times. It's true. But you watch a movie enough times, you start to think that that movie is real. And a lot of times, those Hollywood movies are not accurate. They're not true. He says this, we have sinned against you. Consider these words. Consider these words from a, from a um, past king. It says this in Psalm 51, 2 through 4. This is David's confession of sin after sleeping with Bathsheba and after killing Uriah the Hittite. He says, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. David was aware of his sin, and now he was dealing with it. What's interesting is he killed Uriah, he took his wife, nine months later she popped out the kid, he's being a daddy to the kid, he hasn't got it yet. What changes everything? God says, by the way, David, I'm going, to take your, I'm going to take your child. The child that you bore out of that bloodshed, you ain't going to get to keep him. That was probably saving the kid from David more than it was punishing David. But think about it. He says this, you know, my sin is always before me. David knew that his sin was the reason his child would die. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. What what a conviction. When God punishes us, he is right to do so. When God withholds something from us, he is right to do so. If God doesn't answer our prayers, he is right and just and proper to do whatever he pleases because he's God. You know, everybody says, I wish God was fair. You don't want God to be fair. You want God to be merciful. I wish God was more just. It's just not right. It's just not proper. You know what? If God gave us our just desserts, we'd all be in hell. You don't want God to be just. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a prayer. You want God to be merciful. That's what he does here. See, Nehemiah starts, and he, his mind must have flashed back to David because he does this whole thing. I confess the sins we have committed against you, against you, God. Now, here's the thing. He took Bathsheba from her husband, he killed Uriah. He lied. He forced his commanders to put this man out there to retreat and let him die. And yet he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's the thing. When you sin against somebody else, your first sin is against God. It's against them second. You understand that? That's why when we begin this journey, we begin this journey away from what we've been to what God is going to make us, we have to take a full stock of where we've been our attitudes, our ways of doing things, our ways of handling issues, how we did things in the past, I guarantee, are over. How we handled situations in the past are done. This is going to be a completely new church. If you've been here for the bylaw meetings, you know what I'm talking about. This church is going to have a structure, it's going to have power, it's going to have rules, and those rules will be enforced. You know why? Because that's my job. That's not your mandate to me. That's God's requirement of his under-shepherds. And we are going to be strong. Because right now, I get, I get news for you, church. We got some damage to our walls. And our gates are a little bit busted up. Doesn't seem that way, but if you look at it, if you search your hearts, if you really examine it, we've got some damage to our walls. Some things have crept in, some enemies have crept in. In, the, in, in, in terms of ideas and ways of doing things and attitudes have crept into the church that are not healthy, that are not right. 
and we need to recognize those and say, Lord, we haven't done everything 100% right. We really haven't done this the way we should. And we're going to be better. We're going to do it more according to your plan. That's what the whole book of Nehemiah is about. It's about a fresh start in a journey home. It says we have acted corruptly. This means we've perverted things. Now, pervert does not mean to be sick and twisted and ugly and evil. It just means that we've tweaked things to be what we want them to be instead of what God wants them to be. We've taken and said, you know what, I, this, is, this is what God requires, but if we can just change this a little bit and change this, it'll be more comfortable for me. Church is not supposed to be comfortable. Church is a place where iron sharpens iron and where you're trained to be a soldier for Christ and where you're equipped to be people of honesty and integrity and power and zeal and tenacity and amazing resilience. I hope that's what you want. Because if you read the bylaws that you guys are passing, that's what you said you want to be. So that's where we're going to go together. All right, let's finish this up. Third point. We have this burden. We have this burden, we have this burden because we know that everything is not as it should be. So we're going to do this right. So it begins with an inventory. We know what we've done. We know who we are. We know where we're at. We've come clean. We've admitted that we had some mistakes in the past, that we didn't always do things as we should have. Sometimes we were a little soft. Here's the thing, church. Every church goes through this. Sometimes we're soft. Sometimes we're permissive. Sometimes we allow things we shouldn't allow. But those days are over. Because look at this one. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 11. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 11. When we find out where we really are, we need to look to Yahweh. We need to look to that covenant God of the Bible. Verse 8. Please remember what you have commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That happened. They were unfaithful to God. They were scattered and they were torn apart and they ceased to be a people. It says, but if you return to me, meaning God, and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. That's the place of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where God said his name. This is where God sets his name, in the hearts of his people. The priests of God in the temple always wore a turban. And on that turban were four letters, yod Hey vav Hey, Yahweh. The priests of the temple always wore the name of God on their head. Why? Because they were owned. A slave would bear a mark showing who his master was. If you are a servant of God, you bear the mark of the Holy Spirit on you that says, I am a dead man given life. I live for one purpose, and that is to serve my master, to serve Yahweh God. And that's amazing. And it sounds overwhelming, but understand, this is the great privilege we have in serving God. He says this, so if you turn to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of it, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and the strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servants success today. They're about to do something. Give your servants success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Who's he talking about? You see, he knows if he's going to do what's right, he has to leave where he is and go to where he needs to be. And to do that, he needs the permission 
of Artaxerxes Lanchamanus, the king of the world. At this time, I was the king's cupbearer. That last line is absolutely amazing. Not a priest, not a prophet, not trained in a seminary, not, not some person who's obsessed with religion. This was a bureaucrat. Let me tell you, let me tell you what a cupbearer does. The cupbearer had many responsibilities in the ancient world. He was one, a wine taster, to make sure that the wine of the king was not poisoned. Two, he was the ring bearer. The signet ring with which the king would seal documents was held by the cupbearer. Third, he often served as the chief financial officer of the empire. This is the man who handled the money. So he had the responsibility of protecting the king's life from poison wine. He kept the signet ring with which documents were sealed, and he handled the money. Talk about a man of importance. Here's the one that got me. It is often recorded by the Persian records that the king's cupbearer was of such importance that he lived in close proximity to the king, even to dwelling next to the king's harem. Amazing, isn't it? So trusted was this man that he lived next to the king's wives. Not with the king's wives, next to the king's wives. Now here's the thing, to have risen to this position, Nehemiah had shown his unwavering loyalty to the king, and the king had full confidence in him. You know how we know that? The only men that dwelt inside the harem were eunuchs, physically altered so they could not embarrass their king. Nehemiah was not a eunuch, yet he dwelt close enough to the, to the king's women that if he wished to, he could do whatever he pleased. But the king so trusted him, so believed in him, that he held both the ring and he held the financial records and he tasted the king's wine. I mean, Nehemiah could have killed the king anytime he wanted to. He was that powerful. But he had proven himself to be faithful. That's interesting. He says, even if I spread your people to the ends of the earth, I will gather them up. It means to collect and to heap up, to pull them in, as a chicken would pull in her hands. Have you ever seen a chicken round up its hands? I have. It's kind of cool. They put their wings out and they kind of group them all up. God says, okay, I let them be spread around the world because of the disobedience. But now, I'm going to start scooping them up. Are you worried about your children? Are you worried about your adult children? Are you worried about people that have been in the church and maybe left the church? God is about to start a time of scooping together, gathering together, and putting together his chicks. God is going to build this into an amazing church. Not for my glory, not for your glory, but for his glory. But here's the thing. We have to look to him to do it. We can't put any restrictions on what GGCF will be. We have to let God make it whatever he wants it to be. Amen? If that means we outgrow this place in six months and, and have to have four or five services, then we do it. If we, if we have to go and get uh, you know, a 10,000 square foot a mega church to hold everybody that wants to come and be touched by the church, then so be it. You know? And, and, and if, if 80 Japanese students walk in the back door and want to join the church, you know what we say? Amen. Scary, isn't it? Here's the thing. Jerusalem had been a sealed city in those early days. When Zerubbabel went back, it was a wasteland. When Ezra went back, the people had slipped into deep sin. One of the things that the people had done is that all the men, because there was a shortage of women, they were marrying foreign wives. By that I mean they were marrying pagans. 
They were marrying good-looking hotties from the local neighborhood that were not Jewish and did not worship God. That was the great sin that Ezra went to correct, to make sure that the people who dwelled in Jerusalem were of the Lord's people. That's what Ezra did. Now, Nehemiah comes along and says, okay, a fresh wave of attack is coming. And God put it in his heart. It's now time to rebuild the walls. It's time to rehang the gates and protect the people inside from the influence of the world. So as we go through this book, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to rebuild the walls, rehang the gates, and protect the church and our children and our families from the lies that exist out there in the religious community of Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay? I ask you a question. Are you ready to go home? Are you ready to go home today? I don't mean go home to your house today because we have to have pop less next. Because I'm looking at it, it's looking good. Okay, three questions. Have you seen your true condition? Men, do you know the true condition of your heart? Do you really know who you are? Do you really know what's going on in your family? Do you know what's going on in your marriage? Do you know what's going on in your relationship with your children? Or do you just trust in your wife to take care of that stuff? Here's the thing. Don't trust your wife to take care of that stuff. You know why? It's not their job. It's your job. I will always lean on men. If a marriage fails, eight times out of ten, it's the man's fault. That's just the truth of it. Eight times out of ten, it's the man who fails the marriage. Now, two times out of ten, the wife is a shrew. Two times out of ten, the wife is a rolling hurricane and an angry force of nature. But gentlemen, I believe with God's help, even a hurricane, a hurricane, can be calmed down. Can I get amen? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus spoke, peace be still, and the storm was quiet. Okay. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Second, have you come clean with the Lord? Have each of us come clean and said, Lord, I had some ideas. I had some ways of doing things. I had some preconceived notions. I had some habits that, are, that I now see, Lord, are not good. They're not good for me. They're not good for my marriage. They're not good for my children. They're not good for my church. Lord, I confess to you that I got some problems in my head. Can you help me sort them out? That's the most important thing that we can do as God's people is get that stuff cleaned up in our heads. Maybe the way we've always done it isn't right. You know, maybe there'll be some changes in the future and you may go, well, why are we doing it that way? Because we've never done it that way before. If you want to bury a church, say those words. We've never done it that way before. The seven last words of a church before it dies. You know the four nails in the coffin of the church? And we never will. Don't say what you won't do because God will do it just to spite you. I've known him that long. Last one. Have you looked to God to fulfill his word to you? Are you worried about your kids? Give them to the Lord. Are you worried about your marriage? Put it before the Lord. Are you worried about your business? Put it before the Lord. Because this says even if you're scattered to the four winds, even if you've been unfaithful, even if your brain's been left of right, God can pull us back together. He can make of us one people with one purpose, and that to glorify his name. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for this time. God, thank you for this mighty people that you have uh, given me to work with and, and to pastor and to learn from. Lord, I thank you for our musicians, and I thank you for our singers. I thank you for our teachers. I thank you for the kids that are back there with Lenny and Katrina. 
God, may they be learning your word and growing in grace. Father, I thank you for the great task you've set before us to become a new GGCF, to become a new, more powerful, more whole, complete church. And Lord, I pray that right now you are lifting up leaders, you are lifting up deacons, you are lifting up people of power and conviction and prayer who are going to lift this church up, Father God, and we're going to submit ourselves to you, and we're going to be everything you meant for us to be. Father, our Jerusalem may look pretty at a distance, but inside there's some cracks in the wall. And Father God, help us with love and your grace and your mercy to patch the walls and to begin that process of going home to be everything you meant for us to be. Lord, I pray for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we close out today, do we have one more? We have one last song? Or no? No is good. Okay, I can do that. Okay. As we, as we close out, I want to encourage you guys something. Next week, we really, really want to finish up the bylaws because it's really important for us to have the bylaws so we can get our budget going, so we can get our uh, different ministry team set up. Please, if you can come next Sunday, if you can stay the whole day, I think we can finish in a few hours if we're really focused on getting it done. Amen? So please make that effort. Pray this week. Pray that we have a fantastic week next week to finish up a lot of business so that we can set our sights ahead on where we need to be going, okay? Let's actually pray for the food and then you guys can go eat, all right? Lord God, thank you that you are working right now in our midst. Father, I pray for the food that's been prepared. Father, may it be a blessing to us. May it strengthen our bodies. And God, may it bless our time of fellowship that we can become the people you want us to be, Father. And in Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget, if you eat, it's on your own heads. Now, that's, a joke from, that's a joke from the bylaws community. Go ahead. You're released. Go eat. Ow. <laughs>